What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line after the Thanksgiving holiday with Michael Pina of SB Nation. Now, Michael, we've made it to about the quarter pole uh, of the NBA season. Most teams have played right around 20 games, if not more than 20 games. So that's a very natural time in the NBA calendar to just check in on the awards races. You know, and you go back in, in various years, the first quarter award winners aren't necessarily always going to be the, the final award winners, but sometimes you get a, a good look at early trends uh, and those front runners uh, are in position, obviously, to uh, you know take it home uh, by the end of the year. So without further ado, let's just jump right into it. Uh, let's start with the biggest award there is, most valuable player. Uh, who do you have as MVP of the first quarter of the 2019-20 NBA season? I think for me, it's it's this is kind of a splitting hair situation, similar to what we had last year. But my number one right now at the quarter point is James Harden, and it's for a lot of reasons. I just think that he's he's obviously leading the league in scoring, doing absurd things. He scored sixty points in thirty minutes uh, this past week, and uh, has an eight point gap between him and Giannis Antetokounmpo, who's my runner up right now in points per game, which is, you know, he was basically doing that last year, but right now he's averaging 38.9 points, which is up from last season. He's still efficient. He's getting to the line at a historic rate. Uh, The step back is as lethal as it's ever been. Uh, He's doing it with uh, a new teammate in in a critical role with Russell Westbrook, where Chris Paul was the last two seasons, uh, doing it without Eric Gordon for most of the year. And, uh, I, I, he's just been ridiculous. Like it, the, uh, one of the better offensive seasons so far that we've we've seen in quite some time, and he's a playmaker as well. So you know the assists are up, the rebounds are up, the defense is so much better when he's on the court, which is a weird thing that'll probably balance itself out because it's James Harden. Uh, but he's he's my MVP so far. No, I hear you. I mean, he's definitely on my ballot. I don't have him in one of the uh, top two spots. To me, those are reserved for LeBron James, number one, Giannis, number two. And I just think there's a a difference, a meaningful difference in terms of team play from how Houston's played versus how Milwaukee and the LA Lakers have played to start the season. So that's what kind of holds, you know, James Harden back. Now, I'm not holding that against him necessarily because uh, if he wasn't out there, they'd arguably would be one of the worst teams in the Western Conference. Uh, But I do like to reward, uh, you know, team success when it comes to MVP voting as well as individual stats. Uh, And then, you know, you, you have to take into account narrative. I think ultimately when I'm looking for a tiebreaker between LeBron and Giannis, it is kind of that narrative factor because the Lakers were an absolute mess last year. Uh, They had a lot of changes this summer, a lot of role players who needed to be integrated. Anthony Davis, who I think needed to be empowered and feel comfortable uh, and productive uh, in a new home, a a big career uh, shift for him. And I give LeBron basically all of the credit for all of those things. On top of that, I think the Lakers' defense has been the most surprising in the league in terms of overachieving what I thought from preseason expectations. I honestly thought they were going to be a below-average defense, and LeBron has, uh, you know, certainly been, uh, you know, a central figure in them, you know, kind of blowing those expectations out of the water. So you add up his incredible stats, the Lakers' record, uh, you know, their their you know turnaround narrative. To me, he just barely. Uh, you know, beats out Giannis. I mean, Giannis's case to me, though, is pretty darn bulletproof, too. 
Uh, as you mentioned, uh, of course, Harden's going to beat him in scoring. But if it comes to rebounds, the defensive stats, the assists, I mean, Giannis's numbers stack up with basically anyone. Milwaukee has been very steady. Uh, they would have the best record in the league if they hadn't blown that second half uh, lead against the Boston Celtics, which still you know sticks in my craw from you know three or four <laughs> weeks ago. Uh, so I think that's sort of how I look at the top of the uh, the, the list. How much, uh, if any, consideration did you give to Luka Doncic as the number one guy through the first quarter? And I know that sounds pretty crazy, given that no one had him on the radar to start the season. But I think Dallas is the biggest overachieving team in the league. They have the best offense uh, you know, in the league. It's not like he has that much help. He certainly doesn't have a guaranteed superstar number two guy uh, like maybe a LeBron James enjoys. Uh, did you you know, flirt with Luca uh, in in one of your top two spots? Uh, not necessarily top two, but I mean, if I was filling out a ballot, he would be on it. Uh, maybe number three, maybe number four. I mean, just I, I rewatched the Lakers-Mavs game from uh, a couple nights ago, and he's just, he's just a ridiculous playmaker, a ridiculous scorer. He gets where he wants. You can't blitz him because he's tall enough to hit corner men with cross-court passes. Uh, his no-look is as sharp as anybody in the league. He's I, I don't really know what else there is to say about him. He's also a terrific rebounder, and he's I think he's potentially underrated defensively. I mean, he's just he's just not, not afraid of contact. Uh, he's great. I, I <laughs> the superlatives we've we've gone over the superlatives with him. He's terrific. Um, I will I want to push back for two seconds about the Rockets and their team performance. Uh, they're pretty good, Ben. They're a pretty good team. No, I know, but when we're looking, okay, 13 and 6 versus 17 and 3, I just think that's a meaningful difference, right? And I actually think the Lakers are more likely to come back to earth. I think the Lakers are probably not as good as their record indicates currently, and Houston's probably better than their uh, record indicates currently. Mm -hmm. But if I have to vote just based solely on the first quarter performance, uh, you know, I, I would take that gap into account. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I just want to quickly point out that 538 currently has the Rockets leading in the chance of winning final. The chance of winning the finals is 23%, which is the highest of any team in the league. So I just want to just want to throw that in there real quick. Yeah, we should also throw in, you know, there's computer formulas that say <laughs> they've won the last uh, four NBA titles. They don't get credit for it. I'm still waiting for the banners and the trophies to show up. But by the formulas, Houston's always rocking. Sure. Uh, no, I'm, I'm being <laughs> facetious. Hey, we were speaking about Luca. I don't know how you feel on the most improved player conversation. Is it his? I mean, the other obvious candidate would be Pascal Siakam, who I think needs to be in the MVP conversation too. Mm -hmm. By the MVP conversation, I mean, you know, the fourth or fifth spot on ballots. But, yeah. uh, you know, to me, I've got Luca one for most improved, Pascal two for most improved. But we got an email from Scott, and he's actually a Canadian. He writes, as a Toronto termite, I have greatly appreciated the Siakam slurping so far this year. Almost as much as I secretly enjoyed the DeMar DeRozan slander from past years. Good taste, Scott. He, uh, he continues, I hope it's sincere and not because you are planning a trip to some stupid forest in Canada next summer. Come on, Scott. Taking shots left and right. Uh, one theme that has interested me this year so far, though, is redemption. Dwight Howard, uh, Isaiah Thomas, Markel Fultz, Andrew Wiggins, and now even Carmelo Anthony. 
Uh, Wiggins got a haircut like he wants to be a grown-up. Now I'm all in. He should be the most improved player. So a lot going on there from Scott. But uh, what do you think? I mean, Luca Pascal at the top of your, your MIP ballot. Does Wiggins deserve a spot in this conversation? What do no, you think? I mean, all those. Yeah, I, I, I personally have a difficult time giving most improved player to anyone in the first three years of their career who was drafted in the lottery if that makes any sense like i i feel like these guys are supposed to make leaps and i'm i'm willing to listen to uh you know special cases for luca special cases for trey young uh, okay, so uh, basically what you're saying is this is the most improved player, not the anticipated progression player award. That is, is what you're ex- saying. Exactly. So, I, I mean, if you want to give it to Luca, I mean, he's basically unprecedented. Trey Young is right behind him and having a super impressive season and it has improved in myriad ways. Uh, but, you know, for me, well, I how like- about this? Hold on one second. Okay. How about this argument for Luca? What if it's the self improvement, uh, you know, <laughs> mo- I- player award? Because did anybody have more of a city boy summer than Luka Doncic? This guy dropped so much weight, he got himself into such better shape, and it translated to improved play on the court. We could see it. Uh, I also think what you're describing earlier about his feel, his basketball IQ. Is there a reason we don't call this guy a video game player? He seems like a video game player to me. He's already figured out the defense. He's unlocked every counter to the <laughs> counter. He sees looks that very few other guys see, maybe LeBron. I mean, we've been calling LeBron a video game player for 15 years. Can't we start calling Luka, uh, you know, the self-improvement all-star and also a video game player? I, I just think if we're talking most improved player from just who, how they played last year to how they played this year, that gap... I'm not saying I was surprised by it. Uh, I definitely think he uh, was a a strong candidate to take a big leap in year two. Uh, He did all the right things, like I mentioned, over the summer. But, man, he's a lot better. No, yeah, for sure. So I'm not going to get on you too much about it, but I am a principled person, and so I I can't have Luca on my ballot so far so okay so who you got i'm i'm i i have a few honorable mentions i just want to breeze through carl anthony towns wiggins you mentioned uh brandon ingram pascal siakam all those guys have been uh have had you know they've made leaps in different ways uh gone from star to superstar or or a complete bust and overpaid contract to uh, a nice Cinderella story or whatever Andrew Wiggins is right yeah. now. Do uh, we have to take away points from Wiggins, though? Isn't he a victim of his own like self-sabotage? No, yeah. like, is, he, is he really improving? Like This player who he is now, he should have been taking gradual steps to this guy for like five straight years. So if you're, you know, yeah, you're I, just resting... You know, I mean, he's sort of like load managing his own life <laughs> for the last couple of years <laughs> after he got paid. And now he just decides to show up and play point guard. I don't know. I, I like Wiggins when he was coming out of high school a lot. I still feel burned by him. I'm not ready to hand him the hardware. Okay, so I'm going to give you my, my most improved player then is Devontae Graham in Charlotte. Wow. I had, Outside the box. I, I like it. Yeah, I had... I don't know about you, but I had zero Devonte Graham memories or thoughts before the season began. I I never, nothing about his game was familiar to me. I don't think I honestly don't think I saw him play in his actual rookie season last year. Uh, I definitely didn't watch him in college because I don't really follow college basketball. 
you know, now he's hitting buzzer beaters at Madison Square Garden. Uh, he's adding insult to injury with the Terry Rozier contract because he's better than Terry Rozier. He's second in three-pointers in the whole league. He's fourth in assists. He's 20th in points. I mean, that's just... It's it's flying underneath the radar because it's the Charlotte Hornets and people I think you know want to see if this is sustainable. But so far, what Devonte Graham doing is is one of the better stories in the whole league. It's an absolutely incredible pick by you. If if Luca's a video game player, Devonte Graham was the create a player. You know, like just the <laughs> replacement level guy, like at the at the end of the bench, the generic guy at the end of the roster. No one's ever heard of him. He's not really made any mark. Um, but you're right. He is better or has played better than Terry Rozier. And you hear it from scouts at games. You hear it from uh, just kind of whispers around the league about everybody chuckling over that fact. And I actually think I give their coaching staff a lot of credit. Mm-hmm. Coming into this season with that Terry Rozier contract, the Kemba Walker departure, the pressure to just chain your whole organization to Rogier and just to be like, all right, we're going to be his hostage for a year. This is his team. That's how it works a lot of time, especially in non-marquee markets where you know you've you've blessed a guy with a contract, so he's your guy. The fact that they've been able to you know start Graham at times, but play him lots of minutes and put him in a position where he could be averaging 18 points and seven assists a game. Uh, that's a lot of creative coaching, and that's a lot of. Uh, you know, uh, intestinal fortitude from James Borrego to not worry so much about the contract and to ju- just play the guys who are delivering. Uh, phenomenal pick by you. I think, unfortunately, your colleagues are going to snub him. <laughs> they shouldn't. <laughs> and the Hornets should already be campaigning for this one, by the way, uh, because uh, he does definitely deserves to be in this conversation, even though there's so many other big names who are going to kind of catch the limelight. I'm going to give you my runner-up real quick to Devontae Graham. It's, uh, it's Freddie Van Vliet. He's currently okay. he's currently ninth on Basketball References MVP tracker, uh, with the same probability to win the award as Joel Embiid. Uh, and he leads the league in minutes. He's averaging eighteen seven and two steals per game. I, I I mean, if you you recall last year in the playoffs when he went through that ridiculous shooting slump, had a child, and then basically won the NBA Finals for the Toronto Raptors. Uh, he's picked up where he's left off. Looks great. Uh, it's really cool to see. His child just keeps growing and his game just keeps growing. I mean, where where could this go? By the time that his son is a teenager or daughter is a teenager, this guy is going to be like, uh, you know, I don't know, the uh, the next Allen Iverson or something. Uh, he has been pretty incredible. Toronto has been absolutely incredible. And I think, you know, it's, it's pretty impressive if you lose your best player, MVP caliber guy, and you've got multiple players in the most improved player conversation, mm-hmm. stepping forward uh, to make leaps. I think that speaks well about your coaching staff, speaks well about your organization, um, and also your culture too. You know, guys remaining bought in you know, now more than ever and rising to the moment. Um, that's big time. All right, let's move on here to defensive player of the year. I've got Anthony Davis based on the strength of the Lakers defensive rating. I've got Giannis at number two, very close. His uh, individual defensive statistics uh, whether it's defensive rating or, or defensive win shares are basically, you know, off the charts. And, and Milwaukee's defense has been excellent. Uh, what do you say? Who, who you got? Yeah, I agree. I think AD is number one defensive player of the year. Just I, I personally did not expect their defense to be as successful as it's been, as you alluded to earlier. And 
he just takes away so much. Like, forget about the blocks and the steals and just how he defends pick and rolls and how versatile he is and how long his arms are. But the shots that he takes away that aren't even attempted because he's standing in front of whoever has the ball, it, 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 it he's just the ultimate deterrent. So for for me, that he's he's clearly the defensive player of the year so far. Yeah, I mean, it's not quite like the Rudy Gobert level, but I mean, he's definitely changing some decisions for sure and uh, in, and not necessarily being challenged as much as he could. You know, it's so funny because I was watching that game the other night and Hassan Whiteside got 10 blocks, I think, uh, against the Chicago Bulls, mm-hmm. setting a Blazers franchise record. Uh, they're not afraid of going right at Hassan Whiteside, right? Like there has to be a level of disrespect baked into your game <laughs> if you're going to get 10 blocks in one game, right? So that's maybe why we haven't seen that from Anthony Davis so far this year. Uh, but those kinds of things mattered. Shots deterred, uh, decisions altered. He's definitely in the mix there. Uh, and I'll be honest, the reason why I'm going to give it to him over Giannis this is a carrot approach, Michael. I don't want to see him fall off, okay? This December schedule for the Lakers gets tough. I want him to continue riding this momentum wave and put together a complete season, you know, like a 78-game season for once, where night after night after night, he's this dominant force, and he's kind of living up to these Kevin Garnett comparisons or whoever else you want to uh, you know, bring in from past generations mm-hmm. that uh, Anthony Davis has been compared to. Let's see it. Every night, Anthony, this is your year. This is your time. All right. Um, Rookie of the year. It is a pretty thin crop right now, although if you're interested in kind of, uh, you know, picking guys off the map, uh, certainly the the opportunity is there. I still give it to John Morant. I think he leads rookies in scoring and assists. Um, he's had some injury issues. I think he's out right now for a little bit with, with some back spasms. And then after that, I was looking at the Warriors forward, uh, Eric Paschal. I mean, he's had some big numbers step forward, you know, Draymond Green light, uh, as they like to call him up there. Had some pretty impressive performances, just kind of carrying teams through other, uh, you know, injury issues they've had around him. Uh, but I'm curious, who else do you have in this conversation? Yeah, I mean, it's got to be John Morant right now. I, I go back to the the Mike Conley homecoming in Memphis that uh, the Utah Jazz lost because John Morant was pure electricity for however long, however many minutes he played. Just he was doing everything in that game. And I've caught a few other Grizzlies games this season. And every time you watch him play, you're just you're, you're just kind of wowed by the fact that he's 20 years old. And he's not even playing a ton of minutes for a rookie. I mean, this is a, they're, they're really, this is, they understand what expectations are for them this year. They understand. Yeah, no, they're, they're managing his minutes. Yeah. You know, they don't want him to play a lot. They're trying to keep it off of him. I think they're concerned a little bit. It's like they see him getting the Derrick Rose comparisons, how, you know, violently he yep. rises off the court. And they're trying to, you know, ease up his load and make sure that, he has a 12-year a career rather than a seven-year career, right? Yeah, right, exactly. So, I mean, that's to the fans' detriment, but I guess in the long run to the fans' uh, benefit. Uh, my other rookie is— Well, hold on. One, real quick, one other thing that needs to be pointed out on Ja Morant. Okay. Fashion icon. Legend. Okay, he's another one of these guys like Giannis who wears tech fleece basically every <laughs> single day, and he just breaks out colors of Nike tech fleece sweatsuits, you know, tops and bottoms. He doesn't just go for half of it. Uh, that no one else has ever seen. He had a purple the other day. I think he's had teal in the past. Um, look, I mean, I really like guys like Luca who are just tweeting and Instagramming about basketball all day long. If the real hoopers show up in tech fleece rather than some Gucci t-shirt that no one else can afford, they're on my all-star team, okay? So he's got a spot right now 
on my favorites right next to Giannis for his fashion sense. It's the simple, cozy fit that, I, I mean, that's me in my apartment with a lot less. The, the clothing is not as expensive, but I respect it nonetheless. Look at you trying to angle to get onto my all-star team. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm glad to know that you're wearing the right clothing while we podcast. Fantastic. Uh, but beyond Ja Morant and his his incredible uh, uh, closet, um, I'm going with Kendrick Nunn, who just kind of, on the Miami Heat, who just kind of has emerged out of absolutely nowhere. I mean, he was in the G League last season, um, and uh, he's just killing it. Uh starting averaging 16 points a game shooting uh, efficiently from behind the three-point line uh one of the better basketball stories in quite a long time and just to double check he's a rookie right we're calling him a rookie he's never played in the nba before technically he is he is a rookie technically okay. uh, no question okay. and how much of the Dion waiters experience do you chalk up to kendrick nunn just like stealing his life you know yeah i mean i i'm sure that kendrick is low-key appreciative of weed gummies and uh all of that and everything that's happened to Dion and yeah well when they preach to you the coaching staff comes to you it's like hey it's a next man up mentality you've got to be ready for anything being ready for anything doesn't necessarily you don't necessarily the first thing you think is like airplane emergency where the veteran gets himself suspended for 10 games by uh, partaking in uh you know illegal substances while in the air but like you're saying Credit to Kendrick Nunn. He was ready, willing, and able. No, he's, yeah. And uh, I don't know. He's just like a pure scorer. He doesn't have to make plays for teammates because of the personnel that Miami has with their bigs and Jimmy uh, currently there. So he's really just, I mean, they've they put him in position to succeed, and he's done a terrific job. So even though he's 24 years old, I'm, I'm, I'm putting him as the runner-up right now for rookie of the year. That sounds good. All right, let's move on to sixth man here. Uh, my vote goes to Montrez Harrell. He was a guy I was kind of campaigning for last year as well. Uh, the Clippers, I believe, have the best bench by a mile so far this mm-hmm. season, which I do think to me is indicative that they are better than their record because, of course, they've had some absences between you know guys like Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Uh, I think if they continue to ma- maintain their current bench dominance and their stars are, are playing – you're going to see their record improve, uh, you know, as the rest of the uh, the schedule unfolds. I personally thought he was, you know, more valuable all around than Lou Williams last year. I know that's kind of like this endless debate, uh, you know, from Clippers fans because so much of his offense is set up by Lou Williams. It makes it a little bit trickier. But I think his defensive versatility is helpful. His just constant energy is helpful. And then this year, his numbers have just spiked. I mean, he's just doing even more than he did last year. It happens to be a contract year. He's going to get himself paid big time. Right now, he's averaging uh, 19 and 9 plus a block, shooting almost 60%. I mean, that's sort of what you want. And in the moments where they've been fully healthy, you know, playing in late game scenarios uh, with him as the five, they've looked pretty devastating. And he's had to make some plays in those situations, you know, finding the open man and so forth. Uh, and he's risen to that occasion. Uh, the other guy I, I'm considering, I think, for sixth man of the year, though, what about Goran Dragic? Is he having a little bit of a renaissance down there? I mean, maybe this is just a, a giant party uh, for all Miami guards, but it seems like uh, you know, his numbers are looking pretty solid, you know, changing role there for him. Um, you know, what do you think about him? You, Yeah, you stole my thunder right there. I had Goran on my list. Uh, I got to say about Montrez and Lou Williams, I feel like it's almost cheating 
to give one of those guys six man of the year, even though both technically come off the bench. First of all, they kind of cancel each other out, you, which is kind of what you you said a little bit. But uh, well, the problem is that Lou just keeps canceling Montrez. And I want my guy Montrez to get some love <laughs> here. You know, I, I think he's still one of the most underrated players nationally. If he was a Laker. Can you imagine, like, look at Dwight Howard and Alex Caruso, the attention these guys get for what they're doing, right? And no disrespect to them. Both those guys have had really nice seasons in their roles for the Lakers. But you put Montrez on the Lakers and have the same numbers, the same impact, the same dunks, the same energy. This dude is a household name. Yeah, I mean, we're going to see him on the Knicks next season. So you're going to get your wish, and it could be pretty devastating for everybody involved. (laughs) But uh, no, I, I, I mean, Montrez is... He should definitely be a candidate here. Lou Williams should definitely be a candidate here, averaging 20 points a game and just is a walking bucket still for like the 55th straight season. Uh, I also have, I just want to give a quick shout out to Derek Rose, who's been really good in Detroit and no one really watches Detroit or pays attention to them and they have not been good. Uh, but he's borderline 50-40-90, scoring 17 a night. Uh, the Pistons are killing people when he's on the floor with Blake Griffin. I don't know. I feel like uh, Derrick Rose deserves some love as well. You know, one weird thing about the Pistons, they've basically played all but two of their games in the Eastern Conference so far. Um, that's so not life. Good. <laughs> I mean, life has been pretty depressing for them, but it could get a lot worse. Yeah, you know what I mean? Not, that's like that's good. Like, it's kind of crazy to be this far through the season and have only played two games against the Western Conference. So we'll see how that one balances out. Um, but good thoughts on the other guys. All right, last award here. And then we're going to move on to some incredibly hilarious and thoughtful questions from the Open Floor Globe. They all emailed us, by the way, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. For Coach of the Year, I think the answer right now is Rick Carlisle, number one, and Eric Spolstra, number two. And this is actually a race to me that always evolves a lot within the season, kind of with the ebbs and flows of, of how teams uh, you know exceed expectations and so forth. But if you go back to the summer... And you tried to tell people the Dallas Mavericks would have a better offensive efficiency through 20 games than the 2017 Golden State Warriors fully loaded with Kevin Durant and Steph Curry. Everyone would have called you crazy if you would have said they were going to be for sure a playoff team in the Western Conference or at least look that way after 20 games. People would have said, oh, now that sounds a little bit aggressive. If you would have said Luka is going to be uh, the you know one of the premier playmaking guys in the league period people would have you know raised their eyebrows at you and i think for a guy like carlisle the knock on him for years was he wants veteran you know veterans at every spot he doesn't really trust young players doesn't necessarily empower them and i think we've actually seen a number of teams make really smart investments in young playmakers over these last couple years dallas is one atlanta by trading schroeder to open the door for trey young is another one Uh, you also mentioned memphis earlier you know, trading Mike Conley and just giving the keys to John Morant, another very smart decision. You know, none of this caddy business, right? Where you've got your young playmaker who's going to learn on the job from a veteran, you know, for his first year, just basically throw those guys in the deep end. I think we're seeing it pay off for all those organizations. And I think, you know, more than any other, uh, really paying off for Dallas. So to me, Carlisle's coach of the year. And then Spolstra is just a simple fact of, you know, I thought Miami was going to be mediocre, a lot of the roster changed. Uh, big time personality influx with a Jimmy Butler. Uh, lots of drama, you know, with with Dion Waiters and, and Butler maybe missing the start of the season. You know, a, a few different things that you have to deal with as a head coach. And he's put them together into a top ten defense. Uh, 
all the old adages about, you know, the overachieving heat and, you know, their culture, uh, you know, certainly apply here. Uh, so to me, you know, he narrowly edges out maybe a guy like a Brad Stevens, uh, maybe a Nick Nurse. Uh, you know, there's a, a bunch of potential candidates. Even a Frank Vogel probably should be in this mix. But I've got Carlisle one, Spolstra two. Who you got? So, yeah, you, you nailed it with uh, one of your honorable mentions, not what you actually chose. Sorry, Ben. Let me uh, guess. Brad Stevens. <laughs> no, actually. Um, I'm going Nick Nurse. Uh, I think, you know, coming off the title, which is just, it's incredible. His story is incredible. Um there was a story in the preseason where, uh, I guess not a story, just like a moment where uh, a, a reporter asked Nick Nurse about Stanley Johnson and Rondé Hollis-Jefferson coming into their system defensively and, you know, as versatile wings, how they've kind of adopted to his program. And he basically just called them out as for being terrible. Um, and then a, a couple days later, they were in Brooklyn, and he was asked about it, and I was in the scrum, and he said that, yeah, he basically had, you know, he, he told the players, uh, he told Stanley and Rondé how he felt about their defense uh, in the locker room. He told them uh, during practices. He told them mid in the middle of preseason games, and so they weren't listening, and so he felt the need to uh, get it onto their to basically get it onto their iPhones, get it onto Twitter. He knew he knew that a statement like that would be picked up, um, and that they would maybe respond uh, that way. So I, I just no, I, I loved it. I mean, it was incredibly challenging. Your players doesn't happen nearly enough in the NBA. Guys are definitely sensitive, and it was so early for him to lose his patience with guys like Rondé Hollis Jefferson. Right? It was great. It was so awesome. Uh, so just that story alone just tells me. I, I mean, Nick Nurse is already one of the better just people in the league to talk to. And uh, I love just hearing him talk about basketball, hearing him talk about life. And you watch like the players that are blossoming beneath beneath him on that team right now you have you know we just i just mentioned ronde hollis jefferson who's been pretty awesome og and anobi was awful last year went through a lot pers- of a lot of problems in his personal life and on the court uh and he's been great pascal's taken a leap uh, i mentioned fred van fleet who's probably going to win mvp so uh it's <laughs> a lot of the, the players just uh, you know taking steps forward uh, in the absence of Kawhi Leonard when a lot of people thought that this organization was going to take a huge step back. And that has not happened at all. They're 15-4. and four. They have the second-best defense in basketball, uh, second in point differential. Uh, they're great. He's a great leader. Nick Nurse yeah, is there, my coach There's here. no doubt. I mean, sque- squeezing the absolute most out of what you've got is a great way to win Coach of the Year. And I think that's sort of what he's doing this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he may be doing that better than just about anybody else. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. 
proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. All right, we're going to move on to emails from the Open Floor Globe, but first, a quick word from Health IQ. Are you averaging eight hours of sleep per night? Check. Are you eating a quality plant-based diet? Check. Are you exercising four or more times per week? Check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure you live a long life. So isn't it time you are financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? That's where Health IQ comes in. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. If you're a runner or a cyclist, if you're into CrossFit or another type of athletic activity, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, then you deserve to be rewarded for your hard work with more affordable life insurance rates. Health IQ can save you up to 41% because physically active people have significantly lower risks for heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. And Health IQ is not just a lead generator. They take you through the entire process of applying. And the policy is underwritten by one of our top insurance partners. These savings, though, are exclusive to Health IQ. You won't find them anywhere else, and you must qualify to get a special rate. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com floor to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared to other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com floor to let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthy. One more time, healthiq.com floor. Now, Michael, you mentioned James Harden as your MVP candidate earlier in the show. He had 60 points in three quarters against the Atlanta Hawks in an absolutely ridiculous blowout. Uh, The Hawks looked hopeless, pitiful, whatever else you want to say. They had no chance of stopping him. Harden was red hot. I think he had eight three-pointers, had 20 free throws. Um, And Mike D'Antoni made the decision to sit him for the entire fourth quarter rather than chase history. So I'm curious, how do you feel about that decision to, you know, essentially say, sorry, James, you're not going to get a new career high, which would have been 62 uh, if he was able to get one more mm-hmm. basket. You're not going to get a chance to, you know, really chase Kobe Bryant and maybe eclipse 81, which to me was completely possible given the dynamics of that game, being at home against a team that can't guard him uh, and being red hot. Uh, if you were Mike D'Antoni, Michael, and this is a, a difficult thought experiment to put yourself in the mind of a genius, <laughs> would you have brought James Harden back out at some point in the fourth quarter and thrown, you know, NBA sportsmanship to the wind? I probably it, look. I think that if this game was later in the season and. James had basically been playing as he has the whole year and he finally broke free and and finished and finished with 60 after 30 minutes and three quarters I would have definitely left him in regardless of uh of the the scoring margin and us being up by 49 points or whatever it was but I think there's a lot of opportunity throughout the year for him to do so and this will happen again I think just 
based on how phenomenal James has been. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that the, the risk of him suffering an injury is, which you wrote about in your email newsletter today, uh, which everyone should check out, but uh, you're welcome. You're welcome for that plug. Um, that was fantastic because I was about to do it. You beat me to it. Yeah, I mean, injury really matters, and if he did suffer a serious injury, broke his left hand or whatever in some freak accident because he's playing in the fourth quarter uh, of a relatively meaningless game against the Atlanta Hawks in which the outcome was already decided. He, like the, the Houston Rockets would never live it down. Mike D'Antoni would never live it down. Um, and so on one hand, I I want to see Harden score 90. Like I feel like 90 points <laughs> is possible. And if you're a professional basketball team, you have to take pride in your defense and you have to prevent a player from making history against you. There is no mercy rule among millionaires. Uh, But on the other hand, like, I don't want it. I want I don't want him to do it in a way that cheapens the accomplishment. And and the example that most comes to mind is what Devin Booker and the Phoenix Suns did three years ago when he scored 70. But it was in a 10-point loss, and Errol Watson was calling timeouts down the stretch to set up plays. And, you know, Devin Booker took two shots in the final seven seconds of that game. I I covered that game in Boston. And, you know, I I remember standing right outside the locker room after it was over. And it was was like a mid-March game. It was a 22-win Phoenix Suns team, and they were celebrating like they just won the Super Bowl. Like, I don't—that's kind of gross. Like, I don't really want that. And no No, one— It was— it was totally shameless. And look, we said last week, you know, shame is out in 2020. Uh, so, I mean, the, the Suns were on the cutting edge of, of shameless behavior in late games. There's no question. But when I, when you really look at all the factors around this game on Saturday night, my takeaway is it's kind of actually crazy that they didn't go for it. You know what I mean? Especially this superstar, this organization, James Harden and the Houston Rockets. So, first of all, he's healthy. Second of all... It's Saturday of a holiday weekend at home, so the crowd's pretty fired up. So you get the little peer pressure from that. But they also have multiple days before and after this game for rest, so you don't necessarily have to worry about that. Atlanta has nobody who can guard him nobody. on their team, right? So this, this is like going through like an intramural scrimmage. He's well on pace. You know, he's already got 60 in the bag. He maybe only needs to play eight minutes of the fourth quarter to really get close to Kobe, right? So he could even get a rest in before going back out there uh, if he really wanted to. And, you know, this is also an organization with the Rockets where we don't necessarily associate them with traditionalism or old school values of decency and, (laughs) and sportsmanship, right? Like we actually, I think, nominated them last week as the team that kind of pushes the envelope more than any other. And I think when you look at that Booker example, I mean, clearly it was a different circumstance because they were losing and Houston's up by 40 or 50 points. But it did kind of move uh, the goalposts in terms of how teams handle these late game situations. And we're in a different era. Everybody's obsessed with stats. Everybody tracks the stats, whether it's fantasy basketball or on Twitter. Uh, And Harden's reached a point where like if he scores 40 or 50, nobody cares anymore, right? To really break through uh, and kind of push back against, uh, I think, the conventional wisdom around Harden, he has to have some sort of a crazy night where he puts up 82 or, or 90 points as you floated to really get people to almost respect what he's doing. I think there's just been a, a doling effect. He's a victim of his own success a little bit. It just happens so often. You know, people say, you know, they discount it by saying, oh, it's just the system. Oh, it's just because he gets the ball so often. Oh, it's just because he gets all these free throws. And 
I'm not sure those kinds of excuses work when a player gets 90. I think 90 is 90. You know what I mean? Nine, so, 90 um, is 90. <laughs> Right. So he has kind of motivation to do it. And also he's already heard all the backlash. Like if he was just stat chasing, I think, you know, if if people kind of trying to shame him into playing more conventionally, not chasing the fouls, uh, you know, not doing some of the tricks that he does to get himself to the free throw line, like all of that noise has not changed Harden's behavior whatsoever. If anything, it's only made him double down. So like, why would, you know, critics yelling, Oh, you're just stat chasing at a blowout. What are you doing? Like, why would he even care about that? I mean, to me, he's like uh, kind of like a bubble boy. You know, he's just like completely isolated from all those conversations uh, in a way that many stars wouldn't be. So in hindsight, I'm actually very impressed and thankful that Houston sat James Harden for the fourth quarter of that game. It was in hand. There's no need to embarrass your opponents. The way they handled it by running him through the first three quarters was very similar to what Steve Kerr did with the Golden State Warriors and Clay Thompson a couple years ago when he got 60 and three quarters. It was identical to how the Lakers and Phil Jackson played it uh, when Kobe had 60 plus through three quarters against the Dallas Mavericks going back to like 2005, I think. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad they stuck to that precedent. But I think what you're describing, Michael, in terms of the pressure to want to see these new achievements, uh, the idea that there, these opportunities are going to come around more often because he's so skilled, I think we as basketball viewers need to be bracing ourselves in the very near future for a crazy run at history that occurs in a blowout when a team should just be resting their guy. Like, I think that we're going to wind up kind of evolving the ethics uh, in these situations as a society where the pressure to do something that hasn't been done before is going to outweigh the backlash or the traditionalism. And whether it's James Harden or somebody else, we all need to be preparing for somebody to get 82. What do you think? I think um, the more I think about this, the more upset I am at the Atlanta Hawks for being so bad on defense. That's That's basically my... My primary takeaway. Oh, I mean, blaming the victim. Okay, I see how it is. Yeah, well, I mean, like, what? Like, the defense on him was. It was really interesting to see how you know we talked about this in the last episode or the one before. I can't recall where the defense on James Harden has been constant double teams. The second he crosses half court. And if you go back and watch that game against the Hawks, they were doubling him. He he would have the ball at his own free throw line, walking it up. There would be two defenders standing at half court waiting for him. Like that is, that's just unprecedented. I've never seen that before. And he kept making the right basketball play. And for the, fa- for the fact that, you know, they kept giving up wide open threes and decided maybe this isn't a great strategy and then went away from it. And, you know, James started to attack and get to the rim and get to the free throw line and hit step back threes and do his thing. But like the fact that he played the game the right way and wasn't even hunting for points from the jump just made the performance all the more spectacular. And it would have been really cool if it was a more competitive game. And we got to see him actually go for 81. And I think, I really do think that he's going to, I mean, I wouldn't bet my life on it, but 90 is definitely in the cards for him. Yeah. uh, I, I mean, that's something that would have sounded crazy even two or three years ago, but I think it's justified at this point. I mean, anytime you're getting 60 and three quarters, like you're saying, kind of within the flow, not even necessarily doing anything outside the Mm -hmm. ordinary, you look at how many free throws he was getting, it was right in line with what Kobe was getting, you know, in in his, uh, his biggest, uh, you know, outburst games. And ultimately, he's so physical, and he's so relentless. And 
his bag of tricks is so deep. Like if you're going against below average wing defenders, rookies, they have no hope. There is no chance. Like you're going to send him to the free throw line. He's going to get a layup or he's going to get a wide open three, which he can hit. Like there's, there's not really any solution to him unless you've got, you know, premier wing defenders, like a team like the Clippers uh, have, or, or some other teams that have frustrated him in the past, like Golden State. So, um, I think we should be bracing. I think he's the the most likely candidate. But I also think that that Devin Booker situation you're describing was kind of a warning shot, right? That's the canary in the coal mine. Like there are enough talented scores and scoring and pace have gotten to the point, um, you know, where it's, you know, loony enough. If a team like the Washington Wizards can, you know, put up 150, you know, records are going to be falling and I think we need to be ready for it. All right, let's shift gears to another team that was involved in a big-time uh, blowout um, over the weekend. Now, unfortunately, they were on the losing end of it, and that would be the San Antonio Spurs, who got absolutely rocked by the Detroit Pistons, 132-98. to You know, San Antonio has had a really, really rough start to the season. I think they lost uh, like eight straight games at one point. This has not been your uncles or your fathers or even your older brothers, San Antonio Spurs. And Justin writes, look, I've been a Spurs fan my entire life. I was there for Ginobili's game-winning three in double overtime over the Warriors in the 2013 playoffs. Tim Duncan once fist-bumped me and scribbled on a jersey for me at a Seattle Supersonics game. I took photos with Bruce Bowen at a youth Spurs basketball camp. And there's a good chance... I'm with my French girlfriend because of Tony Parker somehow. Outside of the fanboy highlights, it's easy to understand that being a Spurs fan has been perhaps the easiest role in sports. We literally have never missed the playoffs during my years that I'm old enough to remember. Not once. Needless to say, this is a new era. Every year, analysts are hesitant to be the ones caught disregarding the Spurs, but I'm officially scared. My question is, at what point do I switch my primary hopes from solid playoff berth to hoping to see young talent grow? I believe that they call this, quote-unquote, rebuilding? This is territory we have never seen before, and I'm sure everyone here really feels sympathetic. Yeah, Justin, you're really milking the sympathy card by you know bragging about your French girlfriend halfway through that email. But, Michael, what do you think for Justin? Does he need to shift his focus from the playoffs to rebuilding, or is it still too early? I want to start this by, you know, giving you another. I don't want to overload on the statistics, but uh, the to the five thirty eight two thousand nineteen two thousand twenty NBA predictions currently has two teams with a lower than one percent chance of making the playoffs. They are wow. the New York Knicks and the San Antonio Spurs. So. Man. Going off of that, and just you know what that statistic is—that's the <laughs> definition of sobering, right? Like you could be blackout drunk, hear that statistic, and feel completely fine afterwards. That is wild. It is insane. Uh, so you know, looking at that, which honestly surprised me a little bit, given that there are a lot of you know there are a lot of bad teams in the league right now, um, and then just watching San Antonio play and looking at their shot profile and remembering that Greg Popovich, uh, Greg Popovich's statement last season about how he's bored with three pointers and how he thinks they're ruining the game, and I, I don't know. I I just I think that this Spurs team, how it's built, how it plays, is. It's no surprise to me that they're struggling, 
And you look at the numbers for their two best players, DeMar DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge, and those guys are, they're okay. They've been pretty terrible individually on defense, though. They still don't take a lot of threes. And, uh, you know, they dine in the mid-range. And that's kind of what the entire team uh, does as well. And you just, you can't win that way unless you have elite defense, which is what the Spurs have had for so long. They no longer have elite defense. Their defense is very bad. And, you know, I thought that I wrote this piece earlier in the season about DeJounte Murray and how he was kind of increasing the single handedly increasing San Antonio's pace. You know, San Antonio does not play a fast brand of basketball. They never really have, barring the 2014, 15, 13, that that era when they were going to the finals and facing the heat. Uh, They've never really played too fast. And DeJounte Murray was picking up the pace. He was pushing them into transition off of misses, off of turnovers. And I thought that that would continue. And it just has not. They've they've kind of trickled back to the pack with, with regards to how fast they're playing. And it's just, it's, it's tough to watch, honestly. And I don't know, I, I don't know where you go from here beyond looking to trade Aldridge, looking to trade oh, DeRozan. Yeah. I know where... I know where you go from here. Everyone <laughs> wants to talk about the Warriors tanking. I think the Spurs are the team that needs to tank. Like if you're going to try to, you know, look back at their history and say what was like the defining moment, oh, you know, yeah, it was the for Tim sure. Duncan draft, right? So why let the Warriors steal that strategy? Just go do it yourself. Look, I have been one of DeMar DeRozan's probably harshest critics uh, or, you know, at least most vocal skeptics is probably a more fair way to put it uh, to myself over the last three or four years. Look, it's done. The, 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 the debate is over. He is no longer a star-level impact guy. We can no longer be fooled <laughs> by debate. his... What was the debate? We can no longer... Uh, well, I mean, he was always saying that we drastically underrated him on the SI Top 100 right. year after year. Right. And, I remember. You know, he was going to be a playoff performer and so on. He is no longer a star-impact guy. The defense is absolutely out of control. It's... Uh, you know, basically spread across the team when he's on the court. You can't be fooled by his points per game number. You can't be fooled by the craft and the technique that he has on offense. And it's to the point where it's not even fun for me to point these things out publicly. It kind of hurts. I've reached the pity stage a little bit. um, And I don't see that turning around. So if I was San Antonio, I would be trading him. It's somebody else's problem. Let somebody else deal with it. Um, whatever the future li- looks like for them, it's not going to involve DeMar. That's that's number one. Number two, I think you pointed it out. Aldridge has not been the same guy defensively. He has not had the same impact uh, you know, from a team standpoint defensively. I think that's an age thing. I'm not sure that's ever going to come back either. Mm-hmm. I think he's more valuable to a team in a Marcus or a Serge Ibaka type of trade that the, the Raptors have made in previous years uh, you know, for a, a postseason stretch run. Uh, if you can find that type of deal, uh, then I would seriously explore that. And I wouldn't even be that concerned about what you get back in either one of those deals. I think it's time to pull the plug. Uh, I, I don't say that recklessly. I see no upside with this current group. I don't think they could win a playoff game. Like, you know, Even if they got in as the you know six, seven, or eight seed, I think they're getting swept. And I think that there's been enough red flags and they've been you know long lasting enough and enough bad losses already that even if they want to try like heck to make the playoffs, I'm not sure they're getting there. And I think it's just time to, uh, you know, look at the writing on the wall. It, it pains me to say that. Uh, but I think, you know, even looking at like the Team USA experience with Greg Popovich, 
that did not go like he thought it would, right? Uh, mm-hmm. To me, it was it was jarring to see a team uh, not necessarily you know play the style that he envisioned or or function like we all expected. And I think there's a little bit of carryover that with this year's Spurs as well. Um, I'm not sure what that means for his future. Uh, I guess that that part rem- remains to be seen. But to me, the the best path forward for them is into the tank with a bunch of blow up trades. I don't I, like. On paper, it makes so much sense to move DeRozan and move Aldridge. I think moving Aldridge won't be difficult. I think there are contenders out there that'll look at his contract, look at his production, and still think that he can be helpful, uh, you know, as a third wheel, a third banana. Someone, I I mean, like, I I look at the other two teams in Texas, uh, the, the Mavs and... Uh, the Rockets. I think both of those teams would be very interested in someone like Lamarcus Aldridge, who could slide in and uh, uh, really fit on both ends. Um, but DeRozan, DeRozan's a different, different situation. I mean, there were the rumors earlier this year that the Orlando Magic were interested, and that basically tells you everything you need to know. Uh, I. I don't know who would be interested in making DeMar because DeMar's skill set, it basically relies on him having the ball a ton, taking the the mid-range, contested mid-range fallaways that he loves. He can't really, there is no real gravity with him when he doesn't have the ball. He's a bad defender. So at that price point, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know who he helps. Uh, I don't know what you're going to get for him, if anything. Like, do you need, to, even though there's, you know he has a player option on his deal next year for twenty seven point seven million. Like, is this a? Is this just like a, a sunk cost? Like, do you need to attach an asset to get off this contract? Like, I don't. I'm maybe being a little a little uh, hyperbolic here, but I, I think that DeRozan moving off that contract, getting off of him, is it's going to be difficult if they try to do it. Yeah, I think first of all, I don't think it's that terrible because you know it's this year plus one more. I think that there are hopeless teams that have worse things going on, right? I mean, th- there are teams out there that would at least consider him. He's still a name. He's still going to give you points. Uh, he's probably not going to help you, you know, win games. But there's a lot of teams that are out there losing games. Um, and you know, you'll you'll maybe win an introductory press conference when you land him, right? So there should at least be some level of a market. Your points taken in terms of what the return value is going to be. I just think San Antonio is better off without him. You know, I think they've got some interesting young pieces, mm-hmm. and ultimately, like every minute he takes is just kind of delaying whatever the future is going to look like. He's just in the way. Uh, I think that's the best way to put it. Uh, again, not trying to be rude here, just you know, speaking factually about okay, who are you know the future Spurs leaders going to be? You know, it's probably going to be Dejounte. It's probably going to be a guy like Bryn Forbes and Derek White. Like those guys should be starting and playing more minutes than they're playing. And DeMar isn't so good that he should be in their way. So to me, blow it up, take whatever trade that you can get um, and move forward. That is my recommendation to the Spurs, as we used to call them, the Spurs Monastery. Uh, you know, painful, uh, you know, prayers being uh, read out, uh, you know, painful uh, reckoning here, I think, for uh, you know Popovich and company. Uh, but that's the fact. All right, we got a couple more questions here real quick. Um, Lucas writes, during the spring, I didn't really care whether Jimmy Butler stayed with the Sixers or not, and I was okay with him leaving. The current comments and hints that keep coming from Jimmy are starting to change my mind about him. He says that nobody works as hard as he does, which might be true, and that he is all about winning, 
But then he goes off and joins the Miami Heat, where he is never going to win a championship. Is he really about winning, or wasn't it more important for him to be the biggest star on his own team and get paid a lot while doing it? So, and then Lucas adds, your take that availability is the greatest ability is BS. <laughs> if you could choose between one of the 8 billion people in the world that can't play basketball but is available versus a good player that is hurt all the time, you choose the basketball player. Lucas, if he's hurt all the time, it could be anyone on the court outscoring your injured player 2-0 to zero and winning the game. The greatest ability is availability. Don't challenge it. Just you know, simmer on it. And remember, we're trying to compare basketball players to each other, you know, not necessarily uh, non-hoopers. But anyway, your real point here with Jimmy Butler, Michael, is it fair to say that Jimmy wants to win on his own terms as opposed to just winning in general, or that his approach to winning doesn't necessarily align with uh, maximizing his title potential? Jimmy's a very mercurial figure. Um, I I mean, obviously, if he were to stay in Philadelphia, play with Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, you know, they were basically one shot away from going to the conference finals and then having a really good chance at going to the finals. And then we all saw what happened in the finals with Golden State's health. And who knows what would have happened. Um, So running it back uh, with him there, they would have been a very good team. Uh, I don't... I don't know if it's fair to criticize Jimmy for going to Miami, particularly with the success that the Heat have had so far this season, the really talented young players that have emerged, uh, you know, his embrace of their culture, the fact that they have a little bit of cap flexibility going forward and some trade assets and, you know, adding another star there shouldn't be the most difficult thing in the world going forward. So... I, I <laughs> it's it's pretty complicated because you look at all that and you look at the success he's had and how he plays is very unselfish. You know, I always look at him like a Swiss Army knife that's diamond encrusted is 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 what Jimmy Butler is to me. He'll play off the ball, he'll do all the grimy things, but he'll also close the game for you and he'll run a, a really tight pick and roll and he makes smart decisions. Uh he just plays really hard. A lot of hustle plays, a lot of deflections, that sort of thing. So I don't, I don't know if it's really difficult to call him selfish uh, based on just his style of play. It's not like he went to Miami so he could take thirty-five shots a game. That's not who he is. Uh, that hasn't been his mo his entire career. Uh, that said, he's a very prickly personality. We've seen it because he's been on four teams in the last four years. And, uh, you know, there have been other teams that had opportunities to trade for him that passed because of that personality that grates on you over time. So he's he's just really interesting. I don't I don't I don't know if it's fair to say he doesn't care about winning or only wants to win in his own own terms. Uh, I think there's a lot more to this story that we don't know. And I'm referring to how he broke up with Philadelphia. And, you know, I also don't think it's necessarily impossible for the Miami Heat to win at the highest level at some point on this contract. Um, Well, I think you make a good point on his, maybe his public persona not matching his style of play. Like, Mm -hmm. I do think that he is a a team-based player, a hardworking guy. He will, you know, give you everything he's got. And that's helpful. That definitely contributes to winning at a high level. I think, though, that the, the criticism of his public persona is warranted, right? I think, you know, if you do want to be the leader one of the best players or certainly the biggest personality, the loudest voice in a locker room, 
You've got to build your teammates up. You've got to make them better. You've got to empower them. And he has not done that, you know, basically anywhere, whether it was Chicago, um, where there was the locker room tiffs with the younger players, whether it was, you know, Minnesota, which, you know, he basically lit that locker room on fire uh, intentionally at times. <laughs> and then with Philadelphia, where now the, that's the chatter that uh, the emailer is describing is starting to come out. Um, he needs to be better than that, right? If you want to be a top five, top 10 player, and he's not that right now, he's close, but he's not that. Um, you've got to, uh, you know, make those around you better, let them uh, achieve the best versions of themselves. And so he doesn't do that. And I think that does hold him back from winning at the highest level. I'm skeptical, Michael. I don't see Miami, you know, being able to really compete for a title here over the next couple of years, barring some major influx of talent uh, that we're not anticipating. Uh, and that would, you know, I think, require some real sacrifices from Jimmy in terms of what his role is. I mean, I think he'd have to you know, bounce back probably to be a number two or a number three guy in that situation for them to really compete. I do think he's starting to show his age a little bit this year. I, you know, the efficiency isn't quite what it usually is uh, from an offensive standpoint. Uh, you know, I think that there's real concerns. How long can he, you know, play locked in or flip the switch and be that energetic guy that he was earlier in his career uh, as he progresses forward? I think those are real open questions. Um, but, you know, not to take anything away from Miami's start, he's certainly had his fingerprints all over it. Um, but it has been more of a, a team-based success than maybe people expected when he signed there this summer, and it seemed like he was going to be positioned to be the man. So I think, um, you know, the, the emailer isn't being quite nuanced or quite fair enough to Jimmy, uh, you know, on balance in terms of, you know, calling him out for leaving a winning situation for another one. But I do think, you know, if, if we're speaking you know, as coldly as possible, if he had just, you know, swallowed his pride and gone back to Philadelphia and tried to make it work, I, I think his chances of winning a title this year are better than they are currently in Miami or at any point here over the next couple of years. I think real quickly, I want to just point out that, you know, a, a lot of his, dis the reasons for him being so disgruntled in his last, or I guess I should say in Minnesota was reportedly the contract that uh, Andrew Wiggins got, which was they basically decided to pay Andrew Wiggins instead of paying Jimmy. And uh, we don't know for, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty positive we don't know exactly what the Philadelphia 76ers were willing to offer him in free agency last summer. I'm pretty sure he wanted the five-year max, and if they were not going to give it, then he left. And the fact that they gave the five years to Tobias Harris, um, that could have, I mean, that I feel like he has a right to be upset about something like that. But on the court uh, last year, I don't think he was the reason at all that that team did not make it to the finals and did not, you know, achieve what they believe that they could have. So I'm a little more pro Jimmy than I think most people. I, I recognize his faults and I agree with most of what you had to say about him. But at the end of the day, I don't really blame him for, for leaving. And I, I think that he, at the end of the day, also, he is just a winning basketball player. No, I hear you. Winning to a point. That, that's I think that's a fair knock at him. You know, I, I think he is his own worst enemy. I think he gets in his own way uh, a little bit. I was actually hoping Philadelphia, that experience was going to allow him to kind of shatter uh, that knock, uh, this idea that he has to win on his own terms or, you know, things need to be set up, you know, kind of uh, revolving around him. And I think, unfortunately, the way he left, uh, even if it was justified, it, it kind of confirmed uh, that skepticism and his his choice of uh, landing spot, you know, given you know where their talent level was at. Uh, again, I, I do think it confirmed some of uh, those concerns. All right, let's close up here with a couple of quick emails. 
uh, Misha writes, you'll be pleased to know that I was pumping open floor as I was cruising through the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. It is perhaps the most stunning drive in the country if you haven't done it. Also, here's a pic of Bryce Canyon at sunrise right after a snowstorm. I previously found Ben's take that sunrises are better than sunsets. Very annoying, but this view made me change my mind. Misha, 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 I can't believe you would be living your life opposite the open floor cannon. Come on, man, get back in line. Just like the previous guy questioning the greatest ability uh, is availability. This is killing me. Um, Grand Staircase Escalante, beautiful. Great drive, like he mentioned. Another gem out there uh, in the wild, wild west. And let me just briefly plug an incredible book by Michael Powell of the New York Times. It's called Canyon Dreams. And every time I come on this podcast, a lot, of, you know, I'll get these emails. What are what are some good holiday gifts for basketball fans, or what books should I be reading? The last time I really went all in on a book recommendation was Boomtown by Sam Anderson at the New York Times Magazine. That book is incredible. And I got a lot of feedback from you guys who read it, loved it. Uh, and I encourage all of you to contact Sam and let him know that because that was a real, you know, just work of, uh, you know, pride and a passion project for years and years for him. Michael Powell at the New York Times, it's the same deal. He went down to Arizona on the Navajo Nation Reservation, devoted months of his life to meeting the players, meeting the coach down there at Chinley High School, riding the buses with them hours and hours to go to their basketball games. He captures their stories and, uh, you know, the the American Southwest landscape just beautifully. He takes you there with him. Uh, this book is right up my alley because I love that part of the country. I love basketball, but it works as a basketball book. It works as a travel book. It works as a life meditation kind of philosophy type book where you're really exploring uh, your weaknesses and strengths as a person. I can't recommend it enough. I, I spent a lot of time over the weekend uh, just devouring that book. It's on Amazon, all other book sale, uh, sellers right now. Get it for yourself for Christmas or get it for one of your friends for Christmas. You will not be disappointed. All right, last email real quick comes from Alec. He writes, the summer after I graduated, I got my first real job as part of the grounds crew at a golf course. I would either start work at five or six in the morning. I needed something to listen to while I raked bunkers or mowed tee boxes, so I searched for NBA podcasts. The first open floor episode I listened to was the reaction to game one of the 2017 NBA finals asking, is Kevin Durant still a role player? The answer is no, he would never was a role player. Open Floor was my main podcast for weed whipping around the ponds, changing cups on the greens, mowing and more mowing and more mowing. Ben, you talk about your trips to some of the most beautiful places on earth, and I related because every day I was outside breathing fresh air and enjoying the outdoors. Alec, you're right there with Heather from the last episode who was listening to Open Floor while gardening. Obviously, you're gardening on a slightly bigger scale, getting your Caddyshack on. I really appreciate that, uh, but thanks so much for that email. Michael, have you ever golfed or, or worked as a golf maintenance guy? <laughs> uh, I actually am an avid golfer and uh, golfed. I was on my high school team and uh, I caddied for years. So this email really, uh, really hit home for me. Would you podcast while golfing? In other words, would you listen while you're going or would that throw you off? Do you have to be in the zone? No, you can't. You can't do anything when you're golfing, in my opinion. I mean, you can have a couple of beers, have a couple conversations with whoever's in your foursome, but it's a very intense, I was pretty intense uh, on the course, uh, particularly once you get to the short game, you're putting, you're chipping. 
you know, if I hit it in the sand trap and I'm listening to a podcast, I just don't want anyone to be talking to me. So that might be more about me than any anything else. But uh, I, I, I can't personally do podcasts. I've never even I've never tried. Have you ever cursed out one of your foursome partners like Jimmy Butler with the, the Philadelphia <laughs> 76ers or the Minnesota Timberwolves? Have you ever taken it to that level? No, I'm much too congenial and uh, not that intense, uh, I think. Also, it's I think one of the reasons that Jimmy gets up so upset is because he sets a bar for himself that he wants all his teammates to reach and nobody can because nobody's willing to go to the gym at four o'clock in the morning. But with golf, you can only get mad at yourself. That's basically what it comes down to. No, I did feel for Myers Leonard when he was getting roped into those 4 a.m. gym workouts like during preseason. <laughs> I was like, come on, Myers, <laughs> like 530 is fine. Like make sure you're going to bed early if you're going to be waking up 4 a.m. Get your sleep. It's so important. I actually think we went full circle here because uh, you are a gentleman on the course. But when it comes to running up the score for James Harden, you know, you'd rather just throw sportsmanship out the window and go for it and, and go for your opponent's throat. That's exactly right. Awesome. All right. Another episode in the books here of Open Floor. Guys, we're on Apple Podcasts. You can find our page by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. Once you get there, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy. I'm on Twitter at Ben Golliver. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. If you go to my Twitter page, you can find a link to subscribe for the Washington Post newsletter that Michael so generously mentioned earlier. Sign up. It comes every Monday. It's free. Lots of good stuff. Uh, in that thing. Michael is on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Viazin Victor Pina. Hey, Michael, until later this week when we're going to dig into some of the Open Floor Globe's favorite NBA cheating strategies and more, I will talk to you. See you, Ben. <laughs>